Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, August 12th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Kwai Chen Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So guys, I'm back. I'm back from Las Vegas. I was there for a week for a magic convention I talked about last year on this podcast. I returned for my second time. It's a magic convention called Magic Live. So this is a convention for magicians. I'm not going to talk too long about this because I know some people don't like me talking about magic. Uh, But it was a lot of fun. Uh, On the trip, I did have the opportunity to visit David Copperfield's museum an airplane hangar. He has this. Uh, David Copperfield is one of the richest people in the world, and uh, he, with his partially with his money, he has bought up a lot of magic history, and he has housed this. He has built a private museum of of basically magic from the, the first book written about magic to you know his his props and stuff, and it's a. And I had gone. Uh, years back, I've ri- written about it on the site. I'll actually link that in the show notes. I went uh, when they were doing Burt Wonderstone. I got a tour of his museum then, and it has changed quite a bit. Uh, it- it's almost like this big Hollywood production. It's it's he's bringing you for uh, Copperfield leads this tour, and the tour is only for private. Like it's usually like filmmakers or magicians. And it's not like you can buy tickets to this museum. You have to be invited. And Copperfield himself is after his two or three shows that night at 1130, he opens this museum and he, uh, after working those two or three shows, he's spending three hours to guide you through this museum. And uh, it's not just like him going up to, you know, artifacts. Like he has like the largest Houdini collection. He has like the water torture cell and stuff like that. It's it's not just like him going up to stuff. It's all this like very well produced, almost like it's a show like uh, with music cues and lighting cues. And it's, it's, it's spectacular. I wish I could have 
videotaped it, but uh, he does not allow any photos or video. Uh, but it, you can read my uh, experience with the previous version of that uh, in the show notes. And um, and I got to visit his airplane hangar uh, where he has the the like huge 20-foot D from the original Disneyland Hotel like hanging on the wall, which is pretty cool. I got some photos. I'll link that. Uh, I, I took some photos and put it on my Instagram. I'll link that in the show notes as well. And um, while I was in Vegas, I was waiting for my friend Andy was going to the bathroom, and I just I I, I did not play anything uh, while I was in Vegas this this year. I I didn't gamble at all. But when my friend Andy went to the bathroom, I sat down at a slot machine and put a five dollar bill in, and I won two hundred dollars off five dollars. So I I quit while I was ahead. Uh, uh, Peter, I think using your magic to win money from machines is very disrespectful and, un- and dishonest. <laughs> it, it, I mean, if I could do so, Jacob, the, 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 you can't prove anything. You can't prove, you can't prove magic. I got the other break into David Copperfield's museum to find out how you did it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good luck with that. It, it's just so cool to see all this stuff. I was so lucky. I want to thank David. I want to thank Chris for uh, letting me tour that. Uh, one last thing about magic. Uh, because people have been asking me since I came back from this magic convention, what was the coolest thing I saw while I was there? And I saw this magician named Tobias, who is a genius. He did this trick where I will, I'll describe it in first person. Okay. Uh, he asked me for my phone and, uh, he told me to put it onto the, the camera into video mode and he asked me for my phone and he took it and then he, started videotaping me because he said this is kind of like an artsy project where he videotapes me while he does the trick and he starts videotaping me he turns the light on because it's in uh, it's at out at night and in, in the dark and he's videotaping me and he go puts his hand into his, his uh vest pocket and pulls out his phone and he gives it to me and he says can you videotape me while i'm videotaping you uh for the trick so i you know pull up the camera or the camera's already pulled up and i'm videotaping him videotape me with my phone and then all of a sudden my phone disappears from his hands and uh i'm waiting there for you know my phone to reappear in some magical way and i realize slowly that the camera that the phone that's in my hand that i'm videotaping him with is my phone (laughs) it it was amazing it was was like a mind-blowing experience to like just to have that realization that this whole thing was happening. Anyways, um, that is it for Magic Talk today. Uh, ben, what have you been doing? Uh, I haven't done anything yet. I just wanted to give a quick plug to something that I'm hopefully going to be doing uh, this weekend. So Jurassic Park is playing in concert at the Hollywood Bowl this weekend, um, Friday, uh, August 16th, and Saturday, August 17th. And tickets are still available for this. So um, I think I'm going to have a chance to go check that out. I've never seen the movie on a big screen with a live um like the the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra is is playing there, so I've never seen the movie in that way before. Um, but I think I'm going to have a chance to to go and check that out. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to that for anybody who happens to be in the LA area and wants to experience that because tickets are still available right now. Very cool. Uh, HT, what have you been doing? I visited the hometown of Charles Adams, the creator of the Adams Family. Um, franchise, I guess you would say. Uh, So this is a small little suburban town called Westfield, New Jersey. And uh, at 
first, well, as we visited, there's not really much that would uh, match the macabre stylings of the Adams family. It's very much uh, an upper middle class suburban, uh, small suburban town. And uh, this was a visit that we that we did in anticipation of the new Adams family animated film that's coming out. They only showed us a little bit of footage from the film, which I'm not allowed to talk about. So I will say that I saw it. And um, they basically took us on a tour of Charles Adams' old haunts, his childhood home, a uh, little shack, which he had supposedly drawn a large skeleton when he was 10. There's no confirmation that this was by him, but the town seems to be of this opinion. So they actually um, cut out this drawing that was done in chalk on a, uh, in like a wooden shack and they have it on display for their upcoming Adams Fest, which is a Halloween, uh, festival held in the town that they just started last year. And, um, it's an annual thing where that's sort of Adams family themed, but on is mostly just a, a Halloween themed, um, event. And, um, yeah, it, they, and we also went to a cemetery that uh, apparently that Charles Adams would get inspiration from his high school and um, a the house that served as the inspiration for the Adams family mansion, which did kind of bear some resemblance, but was mostly just a uh, pretty normal looking uh turn of the century style house uh no there was it wasn't black or anything it was pretty it's pretty tame but uh it was aided by the fact that we are being led on this tour by uh, a adams historian charles mccluskey who was very excited to show us around and um basically was also very excited because he went to the same school as charles adams around the same time and uh yeah it was um it was a sweet little tour there isn't much to the town that would really indicate it's the home place the birthplace of the adams family uh westfield new jersey is kind of um not nothing much to be said about it except for i think two sort of unnerving cases involving a uh, the murder of John List in like the 70s and uh, a most more recent case more recent case called The Watcher House which will actually be the subject of a Netflix documentary soon um, and it is still unsolved so that's those are kind of interesting to to learn about but that wasn't really the focus of this trip um, which I went to last week and we'll she'll be seeing a write-up on the site sometime this week very cool. What else have you been doing? I saw some early footage of Gemini Man, the Ang Lee film starring Will Smith and Will Smith as the younger Will Smith. Uh, I talked about it a little bit on last week's episode, I think on Friday, so I won't go into it. But uh, the footage was interesting. It was the, the technology that they used to, um, quote unquote, de-age, although they emphasized that wasn't de-aging, it was a new digital recreation of young Will Smith was pretty seamless. But um, there were it was, I didn't see much of it to really get a good picture of what this movie will be like. I kind of got a video game meets mid 2000s action movie vibe but perhaps it will be um much better than that so that was uh that was interesting i saw a couple of clips from that and i talked about in the last episode um and i also uh did another thing movie related but not really um 
coverage related. I went to an A24 public access screening of Good Time. Um, A24 is holding several screenings of their beloved indie hits like The Witch, Moonlight, Lady Bird, all taking place at um, connections or, or locations that are connected to them in some way. Uh, Good Time takes place uh, primarily in Queens. So the screening was held on this big billboard underneath a subway line so we were sitting in this pretty small park actually um just underneath a giant billboard that was hanging underneath the subway line as the subway was going back and forth so it was it was interesting to see and I actually um enjoyed seeing good time a lot more the second time around uh when I first saw it it was a movie that I very much disliked the experience of watching but enjoyed it a lot more afterwards and Robert Pattinson is just phenomenal in the role so it was really cool to see that and kind of be like surrounded by the sounds of Queens in New York while watching a movie that was very much embedded in that uh, time and place. See, I feel like I like the idea of these kind of like screenings in the places that happen. I, I've done some with the Alamo Draft House, and I know in L.A. they have like street food cinema, which isn't like in the locations that the movies were filmed. But like, I don't know, I feel like I would be annoyed by the subway train going overhead every like five minutes. It was a little distracting. The subway line actually was not as distracting as uh, the constant honking <laughs> because we were right, we were very close to an intersection that uh, was always like traffic, had traffic jams and uh, people were like incessantly honking. And at some point it did feel like it was part of the movie, but at other points it was during a dramatic scene where it was very quiet and suddenly there would just be an outburst of honks. <laughs> and that was, that was, it was pretty funny though. I, I, I didn't think it detracted from the movie at all but it was interesting what is the the team's thoughts on like screenings in outdoor screenings in public places because i feel like you're not getting an optimal view of the movie you're not getting optimal uh sound and it's uh like jacob what do you think i've been to a few and they've been hit and miss i think they tend to be best when they're in a very isolated location uh, like I saw uh, an early screening of Snowpiercer where they put everybody on a train and took the yeah. train out to the middle of the wilderness and watched in the middle of the field. And because it was in a controlled location in a sort of a uh, rural off the suburbs type area, it was great. It was a really uh, strong uh, showing. I know Draft House shows Jaws in the Water uh, at, at a lake you know, all across the summer in Austin. And those are always well done because they can control the area. Uh, but I saw The Night Comes for Us at an early screening, also in the wilderness, but the uh, neighbor uh, in the middle of this rural property was out firing his guns in the <laughs> middle of the night. So we'd be watching this very quiet, hard movie in the middle of the woods, and then we hear, you know, shotguns going off, you know, about a mile from us. So it depends on, on how you can control the area. I think Queens does not sound ideal, but the best ones tend to be ones where you're a bit more isolated, at least in my experience. Speaking of isolated... Last week, Chris was on vacation. Chris, I, I know you didn't put it in the doc here, but I think people want to hear about your vacation. No, they don't. I, I did nothing. <laughs> I, uh, the, the whole point of, of vacation, in my mind, is to literally do nothing. I know a lot of people, they go on vacation, they have itineraries, they have all this stuff they want to do. Uh, my wife and I, we go on vacation we go to uh, a beach house that um, is in my family and it's quiet. We bring our dogs, we do nothing. And my wife and I, that's, you know, we have this, this one, you know, we have other things in common too, obviously, but this is the one thing we, we share really well. It's the idea that we both love to do nothing and we sit around <laughs> 
and we read and we watch TV every now and then. And it's great. It's great to not have to worry about uh, work. And, you know, I, I don't think I can ever fully unplug, you know, quote unquote, unplug from the Internet. I, I think I'm just too addicted to it. Uh, but I tried to cut down on how much I looked at the internet and especially Twitter, which is just a constant nightmare. And, uh, you know, I, I'll say like, you know, even though I did look at Twitter from time to time, I looked at it a lot less and I felt a lot better about myself and life. And now that I'm home, I've just been looking at Twitter nonstop and I feel awful again. So there's a lesson to be learned here. And that is Twitter is bad. Yeah, the, the one good thing about my magic convention is I was so busy while I was there. I didn't have the time to check Twitter, and my life was just so much better. So, uh, But you did mention reading. Did you read any good books while you were on vacation? Uh, yeah, I read a few things, but there's the one thing I wanted to talk about is I reread Doctor Sleep, which is the, the sequel to The Shining by Stephen King, which uh, has been turned into a movie that's coming out this year. And I read this book when it first came out. And I've said this before, uh, I did not like it when it came out. It just, I did not care for it. And since then, I, I've heard from several people whose opinion I value telling me like, no, it's actually good. You should give it another chance. So, uh, you know, I was on vacation. I was sitting on the beach. I figured, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give this another shot. So I, I read it. I, I you know, I, I finished it in like two days and I will say I liked it a lot more this time. Um, I still think it has some problems. I think. Uh, like most modern day Stephen King books, it's really bloated. Like I'm pretty sure Stephen King hasn't had a real editor, quote unquote, in decades. Like they just, you know, he sends the book into the publishers. The publishers know it's going to make millions of dollars and they just ship it out without really looking at it. And, you know, a, a, a real editor would have suggested he cut down a lot of stuff and made it a little more tight. But beyond that, it, it is better than I remember it being. Um, I think the reason I disliked it so much is I was expecting it to be a sequel to The Shining because that's how it was marketed as. And it's really not that, even though it has characters from The Shining in it and it takes places in, in locations from The Shining. It's such a different story. And I think knowing that the second time made me appreciate it more. And it's made me a lot more excited for the movie now. Well, very cool. Dr. Sleep, you can get that in bookstores. Ben, what have you been reading? Uh, with Ryan Johnson's Knives Out coming out later this year, I've been trying to dive a little bit more into the uh, writings of Agatha Christie, who is um, like one of the most famous mystery novelists in the world and uh, was a huge inspiration to Ryan Johnson for the creation of Knives Out, which is very much like a, um, you know, an Agatha Christie style murder mystery where like he has a detective who is inspired a lot by uh, Hercule Poirot, who is um, Christie's main detective character and that that person is played by uh, daniel craig in this new movie so anyway i read death on the nile which is um sort of a, a quasi sequel to murder on the orient express it, it, it takes place within that same um i guess uh, literary universe that uh christy created with poro and all of his uh, various cases and the story is basically about this um rich heiress and her new husband who uh, happened to be going on this uh taking like a a uh, I guess a honeymoon on a boat that's on the Nile that happened. They happen to be on the same boat that Poirot happens to be on. And there are deaths on the Nile and uh, what appears to be a very simple 
clear-cut case, of course, is is nothing but, uh, or, or not even close to that. It's it's way more complex, and um, the book is just like, you know, if you've read Agatha Christie's stuff before, it's very much in that same vein. Uh, you know what you're getting into, and I just really enjoy uh, stepping into that sort of literary world and, and having Poirot whisk me away with, you know, making Sherlock Holmes-style observations that no human would ever actually make but um i just like being sort of uh yeah entranced and and uh, aghast agape at all of the crazy uh observations and details that that character discovers and i think um christy does a really great job of laying it out and throwing twists in um at just the right times so uh, that is death on the nile and that movie is or that book is actually being made into a movie um that kenneth brana is going to be in he was in murder on the orient express in 2017 and he's reprising the role and directing this sequel which i think is going to be coming out in 2020 so if you want to read the book before death on the nile the movie comes out uh, you got a little bit of time to do that by the way, what is your feeling on reading books before seeing the movie? Like, it, it, does that spoil the movie? Or, like, what is your – would you rather read the book before seeing the movie or see the movie and then read the book? I used to think that I wanted to wait and watch the movie first and have that be, like, the primary um, – like, my primary entry point into a story. But now, as I've gotten older, I feel like – and maybe it's just that I enjoy reading for pleasure more than I did when, you know, over the past 10 or 15 years or something, just being in college and high school and like having so many books assigned to me that I didn't want to read. It sort of made reading feel like a punishment. So <laughs> but now that I've I've sort of come out of that and, and um, gotten back into reading for pleasure, I think for me, I I if I have the time, I would try to like, I would like to try to read the book beforehand because that's the original text. And it's always just sort of fascinating to see how the two compare. Yeah. I have like so little time to read these days and maybe that is affecting this, but I feel like I've always looked at it as like, I want to see the movie and then read the book to see, like get the deleted scenes because when I started, I think my, actually probably my only experience with this is like the Harry Potter films. Like I, I started reading ahead of the movies and I feel like the film started getting disappointing mm. uh, because you have the expectations that they're going to have everything that's in the book or be in the uh, the way you imagined from the book. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those expectations ruin the experience. And I love movies so much that I want to, you know, I don't know. I guess I want to be unsullied for the movie in some way. <laughs> in some way. Uh Anyways, okay, let's move on to movies. Let's talk about movies. Uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark came out. Uh, H.E., you saw this, right? Yes, I reviewed Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark for the site, and I enjoyed this film. I think it's very much a film catered catered towards a younger demographic. It's horror for kids, yet it doesn't pull its punches. It's it's um, The scenes are uh, somewhat... Hor pretty horrifying and deal a lot with body horror. And um, I actually had never read the um, the books when they came out. I didn't really have an association with them, although I realized as I was watching the films that I recognized some of these stories um, just from retellings and from campfire stories. And um, Alvin Schwartz's had actually um, collected a, a lot of these stories from sort of urban legends and campfire stories that had... Uh, you know, that were around at the time. And um, I think that Scary Stories Tell in the Dark, the film, um, actually does a great job of kind of capturing that campfire story um, 
perspective. It feels very much like a new uh, mythology, a new uh, urban legend that is uh, that they kind of create the world in in this um, in this film. And they do a good job, I think, of connecting the the very small segments into a larger narrative. The narrative itself is a little rote. It's a, a haunted house story about these kids who enter a haunted house and steal a book from the house that had belonged to a young tortured woman. Um, and uh, they realize that the stories are slowly writing themselves and uh, coming to life. So it um, has some political messaging too, which I think doesn't quite cohere as well as it wants to. But overall, it's a a great um, horror for kids film that yeah, again doesn't um, look down on the audience upon which it's catering to. Chris, I know you are excited for this one, and you wrote a spoiler review, which we'll link in the show notes as well. Uh, what did you think? Um, I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, I, I think I, I appreciated it more than anything else. Um, uh, it has a really clunky screenplay. There's a lot of like awkward exposition lines, which I, I just can't stand that in any movie. Like at the beginning of the film, this guy comes out of a, a recruiting center and he's like, yeah, I'm going to Vietnam to shoot some commies. It's like, all right, this is terrible dialogue. You don't need to have him come out of the recruitment center saying that we get we get what he was in there to do. But beyond that, um, I, I, I liked that it did have more on its mind than, you know, I thought it would have. You know, this political messaging that sort of works but doesn't. But I appreciated that it was doing that. But overall, I, I liked that it was sort of like th this gateway drug for, for young horror fans. Like, I can picture, like, someone... Uh, you know 13 years old or even younger who doesn't really know much about horror and sees this and you know has their interest peaked and they're like oh i gotta start checking out more horror movies and i i, I appreciate the movie on that front it's not great i i would have liked it to be a little bit better uh but you know i i liked most of it I will say, Chris, I think that the lack of polish, especially when it comes to the exposition, which also made me roll my eyes a little bit, kind of suits the the, the type of movie that it's trying to do, it's trying to make, um, and especially one that's geared to more towards a younger audience, younger horror audience, that maybe this kind of messaging needs to be more on the nose. So um, that's why I was able to forgive it a little bit more for its kind of clunkiness. But yeah, I agree. It's a little bit um, not as polished as it could be. Jacob, you also saw this? Yeah, I liked it quite a bit, probably a little bit more than HD and Chris from The Sound of Things. And I think it's funny that uh, someone on Twitter tried to argue with me that this film is in no way political, which is hilarious because this movie wears his politics on its sleeve in such a blazing way i mean it's as political as anything guillermo del toro has you know has fingers in the past like pan's labyrinth or devil's backbone you know always trying to work you know supernatural horror into the dna of a society at a certain time is what he does so the fact that he has a hand in the story and it was producer on this and almost directed it it's very very clearly something that he had his hands on and i really appreciate that i appreciate that it's using that social aspects, even if it's a little clunky at times. Yes, uh, Chris is right. They literally have to come out and say, have uh, characters literally state the themes at point uh, to the camera practically. But it is a very scary movie. And uh, Andre Alvardal, the director, 
who previously did Troll Hunter and The Autopsy of Jane Doe, he makes good, scary movies. And uh, the, the, when the horror kicks in this movie, like there's a scene with the pale lady you see in the trailers, uh, the scene with the jangly man, this guy is a uh, creature who can take his body apart. It's just this, they're genuinely scary characters and genuinely sequences. And as HG said, the movie does not pull its punches. It's, I can imagine a 13 year old watching this and enjoying it and being terrified, but still made for people that age. It is intended to be a movie that hooks kids in uh, by not watering down what horror can be. And also uh, points because this movie has the good taste to uh, utilize Javier Botet or Javier Bote, uh, the Spanish actor, uh, best known for appearing in every single horror movie out there, uh, like Wreck and The Conjuring uh, 2. He's a very tall, very thin actor. And uh, Troy James, who is in season four of Channel Zero, a contortionist. Uh, they both are used to great effect as practical monsters in this. And the movie's one Doug Jones away from a bingo card of some kind. Uh, but I just love seeing... Um, even though there's a fair share of CGI in here, I love seeing these familiar bodies being used to create practical monsters. It always makes me happy, and I really hope that we keep seeing more of them popping up in more movies like this. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about The Farewell. Uh, Jacob, you also saw that movie? Uh, yes, I, it's Lulu Wang's uh, semi-autobiographical film. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we covered this out of Sundance, where it was acquired by A24. And those of you who have not seen it or watched the trailer, the gist is uh, Aquafina uh, stars as a young woman living in New York City whose grandmother living in China is diagnosed with cancer. But as is the case in China, her family is told, but not her. So the family gathers for a fake wedding to see her one last time. And Aquafina's character struggles with the decision whether or not she should tell her grandmother or not. Uh, the cultural difference between America and China, where America would be, you know, tell them immediately so they can prepare and say goodbye. Whereas China, they want, you know, they want to feel a family should bear the burden of the death instead of the person who's being diagnosed. And this movie is lovely. It, it tore my heart up, but then rebuilt it. I, got, I came out of this movie uh, expecting to be heartbroken, but I did not expect the movie to rebuild my heart and make me feel stronger when it was over. It's so funny and so sweet. And the cultural divide between China and America is explored with such nuance. And I felt like I understood every perspective. I felt like I knew this family. It is such a loving portrait told with such grace and care. And it's one of the best movies of the year, hands down. It's in uh, it's in my top ten of the year. I don't know where it's going to fall all said and done, but it's up there near the very top. And I can't wait to see it again. And uh, I think Lulu Wang is a talent to watch. I'm And Aquafina blew me away here. I've always found her funny uh, and charming, but she's so moving here. And, yeah, The Farewell, it's, it's just great. It's, it's slowly expanding into more theaters. You, you need to see this movie, guys. If you're listening to this, The Farewell is very much worth your time. Brad, you saw this movie for a second time? Yeah, I caught it at Sundance, uh, and I, I loved it there, and I was already recommending it to people, and uh, it finally came close enough to where I could go out of my way to see it again. My uh, girlfriend, Brittany, had seen the trailer and was really interested in seeing it, so we went out of our way to check it out since it was close enough to not be too much of an inconvenience. And uh, I loved it just as much the second time, if, if not even more. It's uh, it's a movie that just, it's even though it's about you know this Chinese family, um, and it's steeped in, you know, traditions very different from American ones. There's a lot to latch onto that just really applies to everybody. And it just, it's one of those movies that makes you realize that despite all the differences that there are between people, uh, that we're not all that different, you know, even though we all have different traditions. And it's it's very uh, moving. The premise does sound a little bit depressing, but it's, it's so funny. 
And I, I, I get the feeling that there's some people that may not realize there are things in this movie that are supposed to be funny that that seem like they could also be sad because I, the movie does a good job of making comedy out of some some of the more uh, grim aspects of knowing that somebody's life is about to end. But there there are very funny moments that come from from this sadness um, that I I absolutely love, and it seemed like the the audience which was somewhat limited uh, in the in the screen that I saw in the afternoon uh, on Sunday maybe didn't pick up on uh, the best. But it's it, it's such a great movie. If it's playing anywhere near you, I totally recommend going right away to see it. Uh, it's just uh, charming and and wonderful and really will. Uh, it's one of those movies that makes you will make you like want to call you know family members after you're done with them. Yeah, I uh, I haven't been watching much because I've been traveling with the whole Vegas trip. Uh, I do want to mention because I guess this is what we've been watching. And uh, before I went to Vegas, I did go to Disneyland to experience the Main Street Electrical Parade, which is back. This is a parade that started in the '70s and ran till I think the '90s. It's probably the most beloved. Uh, Disneyland Parade, I think. Probably Disney Parade, period. And uh, it is back. We made a video of it. I'll link that in the show notes. So if you have not uh, experienced this parade, it's 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 very retro, very uh, – the music uh, brings you back. Uh, I, I was glad to see, like, there was people there who had never seen it, and I was kind of worried, like, is this something like the Goonies where it doesn't play well to adults who did not grow up with this but uh people it, it is just so charming and so great uh jacob do you have any love for the electrical parade uh peter my dark disney secret is that i don't watch the parades i use the parades to go take advantage of short lines <sighs> i mean that's not a bad secret that is a good that is a good tip but i feel like you need to see the electrical parade i don't know point. i I, my family never paused for the parades growing up, and uh, when I was in Disney, you know, a few months ago for work, uh, I, I would note when the parades were. I would go ride the, the most popular rides. <laughs> I mean, that's smart. You're being smart. Uh, you know, I was also surprised to see that Glow season three hit Netflix uh, over the weekend, and which is surprise. Like, I don't know. I I feel like I did not know that was coming. Am I alone? Have they been? Has the marketing been good for this? Not at all. This I popped up Netflix the other day on Friday night to watch something, and there was Glow season three staring me in the face. And I feel like I love Glow. I think Glow is one of the best shows Netflix produces. But I think they may have released one trailer a few weeks ago. And other than that, like silence. They expect was Netflix expect us to stumble across things. I feel like rather than try to hype up or or remind people, hey, one of the best damn shows streaming is coming out. Here it is. And it's, Peter, I'm so mad about this. I, I'm I'm actively <laughs> angry. I have not watched Glow season three yet. I mean, this is a larger Netflix problem, right? Like, we, we don't know when movies are hitting Netflix, when TV shows... I mean, we do know, because if you read SlashFilm.com, you read Chris's column. Uh, but, I don't know, I just feel like the general, they are not good at raising awareness. Chris, but you saw Glow Season 3 probably a few weeks ago? Uh, yeah, I actually, it might have even been a month ago, because the, the Netflix press site added it, um... Just, you know, added the whole season. So my wife and I binged through it and it's good. Um, I agree that it's the uh, it's it's one of the Netflix, um, the best, you know, one of the best original shows on Netflix. Uh, this season is, is very good. It, it's a lot more um, emotional than previous seasons. I feel like that's sort of like the theme the show has been going for. Like season two was even more emotional. And now this season is more emotional <laughs> again like there's there's one episode that's like straight up 
dramatic that I was not really expecting. And it works really well. And I, I love this show. I, I think it actually has already been renewed for one more season at least. And uh, I hope, you know, I hope people, I hope people watch this. There feels like there is zero buzz about this show. And uh, that, that's a shame because it, it's really good. Well, Netflix usually cancels their shows in like season three, right? So, uh, I mean, this one gets awards though, so I don't think they can cancel it. I don't know. Uh, it may, it may have like the Stranger Things safety net under it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I realized that last week on the Water Cooler, I completely forgot to talk about two movies that I saw right before that. Uh, the first of which is called Love and Tosha, which is a documentary about the uh, life and career of Anton Yelchin who tragically passed away, um, I'm not even sure when he died, but like a couple years ago, I think. Um, and he was just, I mean, this documentary is, uh, if you're a fan of his, if you liked him in anything, I think this movie is definitely worth watching. It's um, a really touching story that uh, not only traces his career in film and and features interviews with tons of people like Jennifer Lawrence and, and uh, Chris Pine and Simon Pegg and like people that he worked with, but it also gets into his personal life and, and his relationship with his parents, which was just lovely. And um, his parents were a big part of the reason that this documentary got made. And um, man, it's just, and Nicholas Cage narrates the thing, uh, reading letters that Anton Yelchin wrote to his parents and to his friends and emails and stuff like that. It's it's a very touching movie. I cried multiple times in it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just so tragic the way that he died in this sort of freak accident. And this movie gives you insight into him as a person that you never would have seen, you know, from his... Um, just from his movies, like the the way that he was endlessly creative and just talented in multiple fields. Um, people who who I don't know, there's there's just so much to uncover about uh, Anton Yelchin's life. And I think this documentary does a great job of uncovering it. So it's called Love and Tosha. And that's in limited release right now. I'm not sure if it's going to be expanding wide. But um, if you're a fan of, of Yelchin's work, definitely put this on your radar. Yeah, I um, he he died because he was pinned between his car and his. Is yeah. that what happened? Yeah, there was like a I think it was a jeep or something, and it just uh, it backed up and pinned him between um, like a, I guess just like part of his driveway. There was like a little brick uh, part, you know, entryway yeah. into the gate or something, and it was just a total freak accident. And it was, uh, man, it's just horrible yeah, the way that's that. Horrible. Uh, yeah, um, really, really awful stuff. But uh, yeah, Love Antosha is is a great um, sort of tribute to him as a person, and it will definitely give you a, a greater appreciation for him, even if you're already a big fan. Yeah. Uh, what else have you been watching? And then, guys, holy crap, I saw what may be my favorite movie of 2019 so far, which is Parasite, the new movie from Bong Joon-ho. You saw it? How? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I saw a a press screening like two weeks ago, and I cannot believe I forgot to mention this on on last week's episode of The Water Cooler because I love this movie so much. Um, It is incredible, and I, I think... I don't even really want to say what it's about because I watched one trailer, like one little teaser that was available, that was, uh, you know, around online just to sort of get a sense of like, what even is this movie? I knew Bong Bong Joon-ho directed it, but that was it. And the trailer I saw, I was like, okay, I kind of know what's going on here, but I really did not because the trailer does a good job of, of hiding what the movie is really about. Um, And the movie is just, 
it's it's so funny, but it's also a really, really dark thriller. And I'll just talk about it in loose terms in that it's about class and society and um, this idea of, of rich versus poor. And it's all done with this incredible Bong Joon-ho style. And uh, the performances, every single one of them are noteworthy like like good to you know phenomenal and um i I cannot wait for you guys to see this because i want to have a really deep conversation long conversation with y'all about what you think this movie is trying to get at because they're so i think the the reason that i like it so much is because it it sort of um gets you to change your loyalties between two groups of characters so frequently that by the end of the movie you're sort of like you feel like emotionally wrung out. Like I, I don't even know who to root for anymore. What What's going on in the story? It's so wild. There's so many like amazing twists and turns that I had no idea were coming. Um, so yeah, that's parasite. And it actually opens in theaters uh, in October, October 11th is when it comes out. So I know that this is uh pretty early, but um, definitely like circle that date on your calendar for parasite because it's an incredible movie. And I, I hope that enough of you guys will be interested and have a chance to see it that we can maybe do like a spoiler discussion or something about it because there's a lot to dig into here. So that's uh, Bong Joon-ho's latest movie, Parasite. Yeah, I'm adding that to my letterboxed watch list right now. Yes. And then I had a chance to watch uh, Pather Panchali, which is a 1955 Indian movie that is on uh, streaming on the Criterion channel right now. I had never seen this film. Uh, I remember writing up an article uh, last year where Christopher Nolan visited India to sort of get, uh, uh, I guess he was like sort of doing a tour and and participating in some discussions and stuff. And he was talking about how he didn't hadn't really seen much of Indian cinema. And he said that he recently saw uh, Pather Panchali, which is uh, Satyajit Ray's debut movie, and said that it was one of the best films ever made. And I was like, I've never even heard of this movie. I feel like I am... I'm you know, woefully uh, unequipped and, and I feel like I need to add this to my queue. And it's taken me, you know, a year to finally watch this thing. But um, man, what a, a gorgeous movie. It's uh, it's basically it's, this movie is uh, uh, what is his name? Uh, Satyajit Ray's directorial debut. And it's also the first in a trilogy. I've only seen this first entry, um, but it's a low budget trilogy about the coming of age of a young boy in a Bengali village. It's made on a shoestring budget. Uh, the cast, a lot of them had never acted before. A lot of them didn't even know that they were in movies. Um, and uh, the film like went on to win all these awards and has become like one of the most famous Indian movies ever made. So uh, yeah, this movie definitely earns the acclaim that I've seen from it. It's, I mean, I don't know if I would say that it's one of the best films ever made, but I think it, it earns all of the because I guess it doesn't maybe live up to uh, Christopher Nolan's particular hype in my mind, but it's really a tremendous piece of work. And I think um, anybody who's interested in sort of expanding your, uh, your cinematic knowledge beyond just American films, if you want to dip your toe into Indian movies, but maybe not like the super stylized Bollywood kind of stuff. um, This is a much more uh, grounded uh, portrayal of a a family in poverty and um, the hope and, love and loss that comes with all of that and it's uh it's really great so it's called Pather Panchali um I think it's it's available on the Criterion uh streaming channel right now yeah um go ahead I was gonna say you're making up for all the movies I didn't see this week so (laughs) what else have you been seeing 
Yeah, I saw a movie on Netflix called The Burial of Kojo, and I saw this actually because HT mentioned it on an older episode of The Water Cooler, and I had it in my queue and finally got around to checking this out. It's set in Ghana, and it's written and directed by Blitz the Ambassador, who is a, a musician, and this is his debut movie. It's like a micro-budget film about this girl who... Uh, has this relationship with her father. It's it's basically like a like a magical realist type of movie, and it has, like I mentioned, a really really small budget. And um, but Blitz was able to do this incredible thing with it, where like he captures these amazing images that should not be possible with how little money they had to make this movie. Um, the acting is like you know it leaves a little bit to be desired and like there's some a couple drone shots that feel a little shaky and and maybe like you couldn't have gone back and done that again maybe taken a second pass at, at trying to get, grab that shot but uh you know largely speaking i think there's a lot to appreciate here um ad what do you recall about this movie i know it's been a while since you've seen it it has been a while. I feel bad because when you first mentioned it, I did forget that I had <laughs> mentioned this movie and I was like, what What are you talking about? But no, this is a movie that uh, really wowed me when I first saw it. And uh, it's just such a gorgeous, lyrical, um, magical realism movie that, that definitely appeals to like, everything I like. And uh, the, the visuals are just so arresting. And um, it's, I feel like the the acting, because it's more like amateurish, kind of fits that naturalistic vibe. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I'm glad that you saw it. And it's a movie that kind of got buried on Netflix, which is a, sh a real shame. Yeah, and this is produced uh, or distributed rather by Array, which is Ava DuVernay's um, uh, distribution company. So she sort of put her, a little bit of her uh, might behind it. And I think, yeah, I hope that a lot more people check this out. I mean, I'm glad that it's on Netflix where it's like really easily accessible for people. Um, but if there are any like aspiring filmmakers out there, I would recommend checking this out because it's a really good example of how to do a lot with a little in terms of the the premise and um, just executing to a really high level on like uh, creative, inventive, visually arresting shots and stuff like that. And the movie's only like 80 minutes long too. So it's not a huge commitment. So that's called the burial of Kojo. It's on Netflix right now. And then finally uh, I saw the castle of Cagliostro, which is Miyazaki's first movie. And I, this one, I think this is the only movie of his that's easily available um, through like easily accessible through streaming services right now. This one is on Netflix and holy crap. I love this movie so much. I had no idea. Uh, I didn't even really know anything about this. I just knew that it was Miyazaki's first film. And I was like, okay, I've been, you know, slowly making my way through Miyazaki's back catalog. And maybe I should just check this one out because it's easily accessible right now. And, you know, just to be a completist, like I, I wasn't really going into it thinking that I would come out loving it. But this is like one of my favorite anim animated movies of all time. Like I wow. saw it and was completely blown away. I love the story so much. It's about this thief who goes to this really tiny country of Cagliostro to try to sort of ferret out uh, this um, money laundering scheme. And there is a princess and a an evil count. I mean, it's like it, it's like the perfect action fantasy story for me. Uh, I loved every single thing about it. I think it's like very close to a perfect movie. Um, and it's really fascinating to, to hear about the character that's at the center of this thing, because he's a character who's appeared in like manga stories and all sorts of different things, um, different like uh, TV shows and stuff before this movie. Actually, I think a movie before this movie. Um, but you don't have to know any of that backstory. You can just 
go into this film and have like a, a singular experience with it if you want to. Um, and it turns out that Miyazaki actually like made some pretty drastic changes to the character to sort of uh, lighten him up a little bit because he is apparently more of like a, a scoundrel, a rogue in uh, some of the other iterations of the character. But um, he retains a little bit of an edge in this movie. But for the most part, it is just um, it reminded me a little bit of like the Princess Bride or something like just a, a perfect uh story that has like romance and heart and humor and uh adventure and like some kind of fun technology stuff in there as well um yeah so the castle of cagliostro is on netflix right now and i would highly highly recommend it do do we know i think we've talked about this in the past but do we know why miyazaki's films are like not easily accessible on streaming or even blu-ray i don't know actually do you know a good question. I think it might have to do with the fact that Disney used to have the international distri- international distribution rights to um, all Ghibli films up until, I think, 20, the 2010s. And um, G-Kids currently distributes uh, Ghibli films on the... Um, on- internationally but it's much it's very hard i don't really know what the rights are specifically for their streaming um but it's difficult to say castle of cagliostro is not a ghibli film so that might be why it's easier to access um but it is a little bit i wonder if it has something to do with disney and their uh sort of iron grip on the films animated films that they've had um jurisdiction over that might have something to do with it um so that was, that's a good question yeah, if anybody knows the answer to this question, write in peter at slashfilm.com. I'm, I'm kind of curious myself. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Well, following Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, my wife and I decided to rewatch some of Tarantino's other movies. And, uh, guys, Pulp Fiction is still pretty great. I don't think uh, you guys knew this. I don't think anybody <laughs> out there know, knows this, but Pulp Fiction, the 1994 film from Quentin Tarantino, is still... One of the best films ever made. It is still Jacob, pure is this, electricity. Is this your newest hot take? It is my hottest take. Pulp Fiction is a good movie, guys. <laughs> I, I'll stand by this one. I'll fight to death over this one. Uh, but but it, seriously, it's fascinating to watch it now in real and you know, so many decades. I guess twenty five years after it came out, and after so many people have tried to water it down by mimicking it, it is still like just a vital, alive piece of cinema. In fact, the only Quentin Tarantino movie that's better is *Inglorious Bastards*, which which uh, is also streaming on Netflix. They're both streaming, by the way. And *Inglorious Bastards*, I think, is aged into Tarantino's best movie, and I find it endlessly rewatchable. I find it to be so darkly funny, uh, so sharp, uh, such a great two and a half hours spent with fascinating, ugly, delightful characters. Uh, I just want to do a quick poll of the room. Is Inglorious Bastards better than Pulp Fiction? Uh, I want to see where the where Slash Home stands on this. I already know the answer. I, I know what's going to happen here, but I, I'm going to be the dissenter here and say that Pulp Fiction's better. Uh, Inglorious Bastards is better. Inglorious Bastards is better, but only because I feel like Pulp Fiction is so, so early in Tarantino's career that he was still kind of finding his footing. I'll uh, I'll go even further and say not only is Inglorious Bastards better, but Pulp Fiction isn't even number two. So, Inglorious Bastards is Quentin Tarantino's best film. It goes Inglorious Bastards, Jackie Brown, then Pulp Fiction. That's the only correct order, and I will have no arguments. <laughs> Chris, you're wrong. But nope, fine. I am absolutely not wrong, Peter. I'm sorry. I'm increasingly convinced the order may be Inglorious Bastards, Pulp Fiction, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. 
Jacob, what did I just say? No <laughs> argument. Chris is right. Yes. By the, by the way, when I was in Vegas, when, when you are a uh, a movie writer who is at a convention of magicians, all the magicians want to do is talk to you about movies. And I was shocked at how many people in the normal – you know, it, it's very rare where I uh, break out of the, the film Twitter bubble. You know, even when I'm in L.A. and I go to movie screenings and stuff like that, you're in L.A. and it's kind of like that film bubble. Um, but here in Vegas, talking to all these magicians and stuff about movies, and a lot of them had seen uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recently, I was shocked to hear how many of them either were bored, walked out, or did not like Quentin Tarantino's latest film. Peter, stop being a magician. This is terrible. This is a bad look for you. Yeah, Jesus <laughs> Christ. I don't know. All I'm those not... magicians should make themselves disappear. <laughs> the biggest trick that the magicians pulled was tricking themselves into thinking they had good taste. Oh. <laughs> it was a long road to get there, HG, but I think it was totally hey, I, worth it. I, I, I'm not going to argue that magicians have bad taste because generally they have bad taste. But uh, <laughs> but I, I, I will say this. I, I do think there is kind of a divide here between critics and uh, critics slash film geeks and like general audiences. A lot of general audiences are not liking Once Upon a Time. Yeah, well, they're dumb, so... Uh, to, be, to be fair, there's a really good podcast that Amy Nicholson uh, put together called um, a Quentin Tarantino's Future Presentation, and it's a three-part uh, interview with Quentin Tarantino where he reflects on his career, and you know it's, it's available wherever you get your podcasts, and there's a really interesting moment where they discuss Jackie Brown and how Tarantino, at the time, read all these middling reviews of it, and 20 years later, people say, oh, it's your masterpiece, it's so good. And he, his mixed feelings on saying, oh, where were you 20 years ago? Why do you have those feelings now? I feel like he's going to have those feelings about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in another 20 years. But all the critics are now saying it's great. Yeah, but people aren't, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Especially magicians. <laughs> Mostly magicians. I don't think it's limited to magicians, Jacob, but whatever. <laughs> uh, what else have you been watching? Uh, there's a movie I popped up on, on Netflix called American Hangman, and I decided to watch it, and that was a mistake. Uh, it is, uh, oof. Uh, Vincent Carthizer from Angel and Mad Men plays a weirdo who abducts Donald Sutherland and another actor whose name I do not know, chains them up in front of a camera, and live streams a trial uh, over crimes they may or may not have committed. And it's pretty much the Diane Lane movie Untraceable without uh, any Saw-esque gore, so it's just all the worst parts of Untraceable made uh, incredibly boring and streaming right now. Uh, it's the kind of movie where it opens up with one character chained up in a dark room and saying, oh, this is just like Saw. Saw sucks. Uh, literally, that's like pretty much what they say, the opening lines of the movie. I'm saying, oh, you're going to open your Saw ripoff by blasting Saw, a movie that was wildly successful and, and started the career of James Wan. This is not a good look. And the movie goes downhill from there. So if you see American Hangman blasted across the Netflix homepage, do yourself a favor and give it a good old skip because it's not worth your time. Not only a skip, hit the thumbs down, right? Yeah, sure. Whatever you do to make it off your screen, it's not worth it. Uh, speaking of bad movies, I watched The Ring 2, the 2005 sequel to Gore Verbinski's The Ring. Uh, so The Ring franchise has been you know, massive in Japan for decades now. It has so many books and movies and spinoffs. And I think The Ring 2 it took the success of the American remake, which for my money is actually the best Ring movie, even better than the Japanese versions. And interestingly, gave it to uh, Hideo Nakata, who originated the Ring movies in Japan, 
but it's still one of the absolute worst ring movies. It, it, it feels like, I don't know why this movie exists. It has no tension, no propulsion. It has no scares. And there's a scene full of CGI deer that looks bad in 2005 and looks even worse today. I want to hear from Chris. Chris, uh, how bad is the ring to on the Christmas? Oh, is the scale of bad? It's very bad. Um, it does have a pretty memorable scene where Naomi Watts is attacked by CGI deer. So I guess that's kind of good. Like I, what, what other film has that? Yeah. None. This is the only film that has CGI deer attacking Naomi Watts. So on that front, maybe it's good, but beyond that, it's, 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 it's dreadful. It's terrible. Uh, Honestly, I would say the uh, third film, the, the rings which came out and nobody saw a few years ago is better than the ring two and rings is terrible so uh ring two is streaming on hbo and unless you're really really drunk like i was and trying to find a way to um make your wife uh tell you to turn off the movie which is our sometimes our saturday night game of finding the worst thing we can uh don't watch it although we watched all the ring two uh because neither of us would dare back down but don't don't do that It's it's very bad life decisions we're making don't do that a few weeks ago on the water cooler, I was making fun of this this movie, this movie trailer I saw. I keep on seeing in theaters about this like NASCAR driving dog, and uh, I asked all, all of you if you had seen it. And none of the people on this podcast had seen the trailer, uh, but she took a bullet for the team and uh, actually went and saw the movie. I did. I saw the art of racing in the rain. I wrote the review for this film, which is on the site now, and um, uh. Unlike what the trailer seems to to um, give the impression, it's not a NASCAR racing dog. It's a dog who's a dog of a NASCAR driver, yeah. um, but he uh, he's voiced by Kevin Costner, which is hilarious. Um, but other than the inherent humor in having Kevin Costner voice a tiny little cute puppy, there isn't much to this movie. It's um, it's fine for. Uh, seeing on a lifetime rerun and perhaps if you are trying to get into an AC uh, air conditioned room during the middle of summer and you want to spend two hours in the theater uh, this is fine too but uh, it's not a great movie it's a sentimental tearjerker in the most um, most sentimental uh, possible way it stars Milo Ventimiglio as the driver who has a who buys a puppy voiced by kevin costner and um it just wait wait wait, does he hear the voice or are we just hearing the voice we're just hearing the voice because it's the puppy who's telling his life story at the beginning of the film actually he's on his last legs and he starts to think back on his life like he's a musician and a biopic or something and it's it's fine it's fine honestly there's not really not much worth talking about it's as (laughs) by the numbers, uh, mawkish, sentimental movie as you could imagine. And um, I don't know how they got Amanda Seyfried and Milo Ventimiglia in this, especially Amanda Seyfried, who plays like this doomed, angelic wife um, and uh, is a very unforgiving role. So it's just um, it's not worth your your money unless you are... Uh, you have aims the A-list and are craving a manipulative tearjerker. It's a very important question. Yeah. Uh, does the puppy version, like the very young version of the dog, still have Kevin Costner's it grizzled does. old man voice? It does, which is, again, <laughs> hilarious. Well, well, um, well, at least in this dog movie, the dog's not dying over and over again. 
right? no it only dies at the end oh and, um, spoilers yeah. sorry spoilers <laughs> for this movie i'm sure that's what you were expecting because um, that's the genre of movie that this is in the art of racing the rain is the dogs who died along the way oh I feel like this movie, I, I can just imagine the comical, like, SNL sketch of uh, movie executives in the room, like, pitching, like, you know, all these dog movies, like, where, you, you know, the dog's dying over and over again. What, what are those called again? Uh, the that Dog's series? Journey? Yeah, Dog's Journey, A Dog's Purpose, all those things. And they're like, and, and This Is Us is popular. Let's get one of the actors from This Is Us and make a dog movie with him. That's what I think. That's happened. basically that's basically the premise of this movie. Yeah, there is power to the image of Milo Ventimiglia holding a tiny puppy in his arms. So that's it. That that was good. <laughs> that one like yeah. that one shot of him holding a tiny puppy. I was like, okay, I guess this is what I'm here for. I'm conflicted, guys. Sh- should I cut out? the spoiler of this movie like is anybody going to care about this movie on one hand on the other hand i feel like the opening scene is the dog dying i think we're safe oh is it yeah it's okay him on his in his dying days thinking back on his life oh okay okay yeah yeah it's not a spoiler there there you go that's the answer to that uh ht what else have you been watching so I saw Lady Snowblood, which is the film that is kind of the basis for Tarantino's entire personality and played a huge part in his um, inspiration for Kill Bill, specifically the sort of 70s grindhouse uh, approach and the very the visual um, style and uh, flares of this film. It's a 1973 film directed by Toshia Fuchita, and it tells the story of a woman who was born as a vengeance demon and is given the burden of seeking out vengeance upon the three people who had early, 20 years earlier raped her mother and killed her father and brother. And um, I had gone into this film kind of expecting it to be a little bit more low budget and uh, kind of hokey. And it is to, to an extent, but I was surprised to find that it was exceptionally well made and had some real um, uh, respect for the sort of poetic visuals and artistry that kind of elevates, elevates it more over American and European grindhouse of the time. And uh, I think there are even some Kurosawa alums in there who kind of elevated the film and their acting choices and their more naturalistic um, performances. And I will say that the main actress, uh, Meiko Kaji, is excellent as well. Uh, This is a film that I saw on the Criterion channel. I highly recommend it. It's just a beautiful, um, really over-the-top, but really gorgeously made film that uh, definitely... Tarantino based a lot of his personality around. And um, if, as, if I remember, during the trivia for Kill Bill, he had made the the cast and crew actually watch this film when they were um, in between scenes. So it has that, it its influence is all over Kill Bill, for sure. Very cool. And that is Lady Snowblood. Okay, let's yeah. move on to what we've been eating. I, I While in Vegas, I didn't eat anything very like exciting for most of the trip because I was stuck in the Orleans hot, uh, Hotel and Casino, which is not very great. But um, I did, before the convention got started, got to go over to the Cosmo and uh, the uh, Cosmopolitan uh, Hotel and Casino where they have a new, like, uh, it's not a food court. What do they call those now that it's like an upscale food court? Food hall. They call them food halls. It's, they now have a food hall over there, and they have 
Hattie B's Hot Chicken. And I've heard about Hattie B's. Hattie B's is uh, a Nashville staple. And I think we talked a few months ago about Howling Rays in in Chinatown in Los Angeles and how they're kind of like this popular thing. Uh, me and Ben both tried and loved it. Um, I was excited to try this because this is like one of the originators. This this is this predates Howling Rays and it is in the Cosmo. Uh, I I got um some hot, got some hot chicken tenders there and I got some banana pudding and uh, I want to say it was it was awesome. I don't think it's better than Howling Rays, but I will say the banana pudding was incredible. So uh, if you are ever in Vegas, staying at the Cosmo or near the Cosmo, check that out. Uh, they have a new food hall, which has like a lot of good looking food there. So, yeah, just check that check that out in general. Uh, Brad, what have you been eating lately? So the movie What If, starring uh, Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan, introduced the concept of this sandwich known as the Fool's Gold Loaf uh, into my life. Uh, apparently, it's something that is well known because it is considered to be Elvis Presley's famous sandwich, and I hadn't heard of that until I had seen the movie What If? And the Fool's Gold Loaf um, is apparently a sandwich that is made into an entire loaf of French bread, where you cut it in half, carve out the uh, a big part of the inside of the bread, uh, put an entire jar of peanut butter on one side, an entire jar of jelly on the other, and put a pound of bacon in the middle. Um, Bad. I, this, hold on, hold this, on. This sounds irresponsible. It does sound irresponsible, and that's why we did not do, my girlfriend and I did not make the full sandwich. We made a much smaller scale palatable <laughs> version that would not kill us. Um, so because we, we found some, uh, like a, like a small, um, small French bread, and we made it and like cut it cut it in half, so we just had one sandwich to ourselves with not nearly as much peanut butter, jelly, or bacon. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a, a very good sandwich. Um, I, it's, it's more like a, I, I think it's better suited as like a, almost like a dessert, uh, rather than like a sandwich for a meal because it is, uh, very sweet because of the peanut butter and jelly. It mixes really well, uh, with the bacon. It would even make a good breakfast sandwich, I suppose. Um, but it doesn't, it did make me want to put bacon on like uh just a regular peanut butter and jelly sandwich whenever i decide to have one um it's even even like lessening the number of the amount of ingredients that we we put in it since we didn't put in a whole jar of peanut butter the peanut butter still is pretty heavy in the sandwich so probably need to just like pull pull back on the peanut butter even a little bit uh but the, the like i said the mixture of the taste of those three things in in a sandwich is actually really good Interesting. I feel like this is the sort of thing that you could find somewhere in in Austin. Jacob, have you, have you ever heard of this before? I've heard of it. I didn't know it was called this. Uh, I've never had it, but I have seen plenty of peanut butter, jelly, and bacon combinations scattered all across the city. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Brad, don't don't have the whole thing. <laughs> no, no. After, even after having like this much smaller version that we did... I don't know how Elvis Presley could eat an entire one of those sandwiches, and it, but it does explain why he did die so early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Br- Brad, we care about you. We want you to live. Do, do not start eating these sandwiches. This is my life now. <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk about what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? Uh, Peter, you weren't here when I talked about Horrified, the new Universal Monsters board game uh, that's now available at Amazon, Barnes Noble, Target, etc. I'm very I've... interested in this. Like, it, it, I know it's a mass market game is any good 
Yeah, I talked about last week. It's really good. And we're working a review right now for the site. I'm working a few more games in to make sure we you know test out from all angles. Uh, but for a game that's $35 and available at your local Target, it's exceptionally good. It is you know a pandemic level, you know medium level family game. But it themes great. The mechanics work. The one note I want to make, uh, the reason I have a follow up uh, statement here about it is that. It is tougher with more players because the game is timed by a monster deck of cards that activate the monsters on the board. And the monster deck remains the same size whenever you play with different player counts. So when you play with two players, there's room for error because if you make a mistake, you, you have to wait one turn and it's back to you and you can rectify it. Whereas five players, there's still the same number of turns spread across five people. So communication and coordination becomes far more important with a higher player count. And uh, game setups that we are uh, breezed through with two players became genuinely challenging with, with five players. So uh, that's just a little note for people who may be picking up Horrified, is that it is a harder game uh, with five people. It's not, not, not a worse game. It's actually, I think it may have enjoyed the five-player game more uh, because it definitely required the table to be in constant communication to really coordinate. But just a heads up, it is a very good game, and I'm looking forward to playing it more and looking forward to them inevitably releasing expansions to add more monsters into the game. You know, Jacob, this is why hobby board games usually have like this long drawn out setup process of like adding and removing cards because they adjust that balance but with with a mean like mainstream game that you can buy in the like you know at, at a big store like people don't want to go through that setup process so i what do you feel about that like do you think there should be a balance like changing setup or do you think that like just leave it out because people don't want it in this case, no, because this game is $35 and intended for families. Uh, families who, let me put it this way, this is, this is for people who are, you know, Yeah, but graduating. these families of four or five are going to be like, yeah. this game's hard. Yeah, it is hard. Um, but the game does scale in other ways. Like, for example, you can add or, or subtract a number of monsters. You can face two monsters or three or four or even five if you're crazy. So if you're having trouble, you know, with three monsters, play with two. If you're breezing through with three monsters, play with four monsters. So the game scales that way. So... Uh, we played a three play, a three monster game with five players, and we got our asses kicked. Um, whereas we played a four monster game with two players, and we you know squeaked by. So th- there are ways for it to get go through. I do wish rulebook maybe specified that hey, the game's harder with five players. But uh, this is not this is like for example, I've played I played hundreds of hours of Arkham Horror, an extremely intense uh, heavyweight uh, board game that takes three hours to play. An hour to set up and requires extensive, you know, card balancing and extensive, uh, like balancing from the player setting it up. And I love that game, but I would not wish it upon anyone. I play the game <laughs> because, um, because I'm addicted to board games, not because it's a, you know, elegant design. Whereas the beauty of Horrified is that, in addition to being a thematically well done game, you know, somebody who's played Pandemic or has played Munchkin or has played, you know, games that are intended for, you know, people who are new to the hobby or people who are, you know, looking for a lighter game, can have it set up in five minutes and be playing immediately. So it's really hard for me to want there to be more rules in the game that's already, for its you know weight class, very simple. I, I hate to take a, a left turn here, but I have to ask you, Jacob, does your Alamo Drafthouse, like the Alamo Drafthouse in L.A. has a selection of board games that you can actually, that are open and you can, they have like tables and you can just break them out and play them with friends, you know, order some beers and you don't have to, you know, pay any money to do so. Does like any of the Austin draft houses Uh, offer that? Not yet. I wouldn't be surprised if they do start adding that because especially with Mondo making more board games, I feel like it's going to be something that they're leaning more heavily into, but there's a thriving, um, 
scene of board game cafes in Austin. So if they do try that, they have very stiff competition. It's starting to the point where there's a place locally uh, called Emerald uh, Emerald Tavern Cafe, which is a board game cafe. You know, where you you buy games, you buy coffee, buy sandwiches and snacks, and you know, rent a table in the back and play. They are moving from a you know small strip mall space into a closed bar restaurant. They're upgrading to like a massive space. Like it's it's, it's awesome the market where board game cafes are on the rise. There's a point where they can afford large retail spaces as opposed to you know strip mall spots. So I don't I don't know what the scene in L.A. is, but in we, Austin we it's, have it's some... much heavier. We have some awesome game, uh, board game cafes like Game Hoss, uh, but you have to rent the space. You have to rent the table, as you mentioned. And at the Elmo Draft House, that the video vortex that's in LA, like you can just if there's tables open, it, it's, it costs nothing. Like I guess you don't even have to buy a beer. I don't think there's any rules to that actually. Um, I do want to uh, plug one more thing. I did. Uh, Kitra and I did do a video tour of the new Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles, and that video went up today. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So if you want to check that out, you can check that out there. Chick, uh, what else have you been playing? Uh, I'm going to play something else I have not played yet, but something I'm reading through, and that's the game Band of Blades. It's a new RPG. It came out this month. Uh, it is by designer uh, Strauss uh, Asimov. I'm sorry, uh, Asimovic and John the Buff Little. And this is a game based on my favorite uh, RPG system of all time, and that is Forged in the Dark. I've talked about Forged in the Dark before when, it, when the game originated in, which is called Blades in the Dark. Uh, but whereas in Blades in the Dark, the system is used to tell like Ocean's Eleven style fantasy stories where you're like cool criminals pulling off heists in a fantasy world. The system here has been taken and expanded upon. They use the same basic dice system, the same skeleton of rules to tell a very different game, which is that uh, a fantasy warfare game where at the start of the campaign, or however you choose to play it, you're an army in full retreat, having lost a devastating battle against the army of the undead. And every player plays two characters. They play a general or a, and a commander in the tent, you know, looking over maps, looking over charts, making decisions. How do we feed the troops? Where do we go? Which direction do we take? How do we, how do we keep people alive? How do we you know, fight the armies of the undead? And then once they make all those decisions, they, they switch down to your other character, who's a grunt on the battlefield and has to enact the decisions made by the higher-ups. So it's a game where you're playing both sides of the ward, the strategy and the tactics, and the game flat-out says, your soldiers are very weak, they will probably die. Uh, so if your character survives a few sessions, you know, he's, he's a veteran. Whereas like, other people have to, like, you know, have to re-roll a character every so often because they flat-out die. So you're playing as a character who's, you know, who has the lives of your other characters in their hands. And I'm going to play it hopefully this month. It's a very thick rule book. Uh, but the idea of a war game that asks you to take on both sides of a conflict is very exciting and very dramatic. And Forge and Dark is a great system because it's really hard to, um, not really hard, it's a very complex system for somebody to run, like to run a game, you need to learn a lot. But for a player, it's very simple to approach because it's very story-driven and very character-driven. So instead of having to learn charts and numbers, all players have to do is say, oh, I want to do this, my character would do this. As long as the person running the game knows the rules, which will be my job here, uh, they can do whatever they want. So it's a game, it's a system I love because for a player, it's just as much as saying, what would my character do? And for the game master, it's a matter of just knowing this really intricate system that's really satisfying to crunch through. Okay, I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find links to the articles we mentioned in the podcast in the show notes. Uh, this podcast is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, 
questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Jake, hey, Jacob, I, hey, I, I, I have the whole I have the whole name. I have the whole name of the book here. Yeah, it's not happening. All right. Well, what's um, the name of the book? It's Lewis A. Sapiens, the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and a frenery, colon, sharp retorts, comma. How do you say, say that word? Proposites? Comma, caustic quips, comma, and impolite put downs. There were two errors in that title read, so what, you know, what, I'm not gonna, what, I'm not, <laughs> what were the errors? I'm not gonna tell you. You mispronounced one word and you added <sighs> and you added one unnecessary piece of punctuation. So that those two errors. Um Wait, I means, I added something? Yes, you did. <sighs> Peter, last week he said that even if you read it correctly, he would find some way to do this. So you're you're really playing a losing game here. Yeah. Well, I hope up to the features section. So, if you guys are ready for some insult, a comedy about how you all look. Like, for example, HT, she uses fine rouges to bring out her cheekbones, good mascara to bring out her eyes, good lipsticks to brighten her lips. But when she gives a good sneeze, it brings out her teeth. Ha, I get it. Because I have big teeth. Well, uh, Ben, his hair has been dyed so often, his dandruff is technicolored. <laughs> wow. Uh, Chris has so many wrinkles on his forehead, he has to screw his hat on. Damn. <laughs> uh, Brad, he's not exactly fading. He's dying. Oh, every day. You see, you see, it's dying. You're not exactly <laughs> fading. Oh, You're okay. <laughs> you know, a, jo oh, a joke is so much better when you actually have to see how it's felt. Well, Peter, you're so bald, you have to wear sunglasses to look at, look at you in bright light. Damn. Hmm. It's, this is rough. <laughs> well, well, Brad, your hair is departed in the middle. <laughs> and Chris, he has a new haircut. The only trouble is the crew is bailing out. What? Chris has a new haircut. The only trouble is the crew is bailing out. It's a crew cut, and then they're oh, like, "Oh, wow, yeah. this is." This is <laughs> I love wow. when I get my jokes explained to me. Yeah. Well, HT, there's one proverb that really depresses you: hair today, gone tomorrow. Hair today. <sighs> I guess today, I'm balding. Gone tomorrow. Uh, the hair, it. the hair sounds like. That's yes, enough, Jacob. <laughs> 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 <laughs>